Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University in Sydney, or I would be if we weren't in lockdown. Uh, So actually, I'm coming to you live from my house. I have to apologize to uh, Richard here today, just in case my three-year-old makes any noise. Even though it's 10 p.m. at night, she's always um, up for some late-night antics. So if you hear in the background, that's Margo. Uh, I'm here today with Richard Mills. He is a senior lecturer in history at the University of East Anglia, and he also teaches into the FIFA MA at De Montfort University, and he is the author of um, what I'm sure surprises few people. This is just a really excellent book uh, called The Politics of Football in Yugoslavia, Sport, Nationalism, and the State. It's out uh, with Bloomsbury, I.B. Torres in 2018, and it is the winner of the Lord uh, Aberdare Literary Prize from the British Society of Sports Historians. Thank you very much, Richard, for joining us. Thank you, Keith. It's nice to chat. Um, I must also say uh, uh, I must apologize if there are any sound problems. We've got new kittens in the house that are tearing the place up, but I think that I've uh, secured them reasonably far away. (laughs) Well, hopefully neither of our uh, mutual distractions will interrupt during the interview. But I, you know what? I think it brings a little character sometimes, so I don't really mind. Indeed. So, Richard, uh, I love the book. Um, I knew I was going to love it before I even started it. But I have to admit, I was, I'm was i a European historian, and I was somewhat daunted because the history of Yugoslavia is not a uh, maybe the easiest uh national history to tackle in some way. So I wondered how you developed this project. Yeah, so um, I've always been interested in history, in in travel and in sport. I came to the discipline slightly later than most uh, as a mature student. And it was really doing undergraduate modules that I realized that I might be able to productively combine uh, my two uh, major interests of, of history and sport. And so 
for my dissertation, I I looked at the uh, relationship between football and the collapse of communism across Eastern Europe. So I went to uh, Lithuania, to East Germany, and to Serbia to speak to various actors that were involved in the, the late 80s and early 90s. And, and it was really then that it struck me that the, the former Yugoslavia is such a rich case for studying the, the various relationships between uh, sport, politics, nationalism, state building, you know, conflict. So, so it really grew from there. I, I'd long had a sense that looking at sport was a great way to understand cultures that you're perhaps not too too familiar with so you know whether that's baseball in Japan Cuba or or hockey in Canada um, or football in in Brazil uh, uh, and across across Europe and elsewhere that sense that it, it gives you a window into uh, into a culture that, that perhaps is difficult to find uh, in in other places with some some possible exceptions such as uh, pop, popular music, cinema, and, and things like this. So, um, with all that in the background, I embarked on a PhD and uh, went to live with my wife in Novi Sad in Serbia. And uh, that city happens to be twinned with uh, with Norwich, where I studied and now work. And there we enrolled on a Serbian as a foreign language program and I I picked up the language while uh, doing some of the preliminary research and uh, while visiting uh, an awful lot of the uh, the important locations in the history of, of Yugoslav football and, and Yugoslav politics. Yeah, one of the things, I mean, like I, I said, I, one of the things that really struck me about this is that Yugoslavian history, I think, among Europeanists, is a history that many people tend to avoid because it can be so um, tricky. It's a very difficult subject matter. So when we teach our general surveys, you know, you talk about the fall of communism, but you don't talk about maybe the fall of communism in Yugoslavia. And you get to the 90s and you might touch on the Balkan Wars, but maybe you don't because it feels like by the time you get there, that's basically the end of the semester. Um, so when I started reading the book, even though I mean, I'm a specialist in 20th century European history, I, I learned so much. I, I thought it was just um, exemplary in terms of combine, showing what sports histories can do for kind of national histories. And so I wondered if when you started writing, when you started researching, um, how you balanced those two goals, was it always something that you saw being um, a, a history that was both a sports history and a history of Yugoslavia, or did it become, was it originally a sports history and it became bigger? Yeah. So I think it's, it's very much uh, a history of Yugoslavia first and foremost with um, football as the vehicle to explore the various attempts to, to create this state, the, uh, various arguments surrounding how that state should be structured and then uh, dissent and eventual destruction uh, of, of that, that multi-ethnic polity. But 
I, I think that sport does give you a window into all manner of developments in the region uh, across across the entire 20th century. It, it's there front and center in the the big moments, whether whether that's in the formation of the first kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, uh, in the revolution of the Second World War, uh, in the uh, the the moment at which Yugoslavia embarks on its separate path from other communist states, uh, and of course uh, in its final years of existence, it's a way to open up those topics from from perhaps a, a perspective that uh, might not be familiar to to many people. It gives you an opportunity to talk about something which which people feel passionate about uh, in. Uh, all parts of the state, uh, it gives you something to um, compare and contrast across parts of the state and across chronological periods as well. So it just seems to me that it's a way to approach that history in a in a new way from a fresh perspective. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I do want to get um, here shortly into kind of some of the origins of that. I have a, just a couple other kind of overarching questions. Uh, I, I did wonder when I was reading it, um, especially given some of the periodization, kind of where you start and where you stop, whether the story would have been different if you had talked um, or if you'd focused more on other a, a different sport. Um, you know, is there is there some logic to football? Is it the logic that it's the most popular sport? Or what? what is it that... Um, brought you to football yeah i mean i think that you could write a book that sheds light on the history of yugoslavia on various sports Uh, so this is an area where the populations thrive at team sports in particular so water polo basketball handball volleyball these are all uh, sports where uh, the former yugoslavia and its successor states have done extraordinarily well but I just think with with football you get that that spread. So if if for example you wanted to uh, study Slovenia, then uh, perhaps winter sports would be a good way to go. You know, you could look at uh, downhill, other forms of skiing, at, at hockey, etc. But but that would close off large parts of of the former Yugoslavia to go down that route. Uh, likewise with um, all sorts of sorts of other sports as well so I think there's something about football which ensures that it's spread right across this territory from uh, the earliest uh, years of the 20th century and it also is a sport which is played in in all types of um, environment in in the state as well so whether that's uh, urban rural or whether that's on the uh, the islands scattered across the Adriatic Sea, or the the rich fertile plains of Vojvodina, uh, inland in the the northeast of the former state, or in mountainous Bosnia, you you have this this sport spreading across that state and actually playing uh, a key role in in knitting all of those diverse territories with their with their populations together. Yeah, I I, um, it, I asked the question because I 
when I was reading the book, it made, especially the final chapters, it made me think of the kind of long tail of people competing in Olympic games under the, um, you know, the, the, the name of former, the former Yugoslavia, <laughs> um, yeah. for in, even into the two thousands, um, still competing, but didn't seem like that happened in football. The, the, the other thing I would point out for listeners is that just absolutely impressive breadth of the research that you, you did in terms of, uh, just different, uh, locations, but that also there's a very, you, in a very clever way where, where, um, throughout the book kind of geographically marking places or using kind of architectural descriptions to, to indicate here, I've done this research, I've been these places, um, uh, that, by the time you got to the end of the book, you're like, man, Richard has been all over the former Yugoslavia. So how, how did that work? How did you do that? How, I mean, how much time did that take to, to see all these places to go from one uh, corner of this, um, you know, the Balkans to the other? Yeah. The exploration of physical locations is a, something which is very important to me. I would feel, very uncomfortable indeed about writing about uh, locations that that I hadn't seen with my own eyes. Um, you know, there's the uh, oft-repeated idea that uh, history is a different country, and that's that's true. You know, things things undoubtedly change over time, but uh, what we can do is go to the locations where where many of the events that we're interested in uh, actually occurred, and we can. We can stand on many of those terraces that uh, that our football supporters stood on. We can uh, travel to those stadiums using the same mode of transport, whether that's uh, uh, worn-out suburban trains, trams, uh, trolley buses, or uh, Yugo cars, which were still very much in circulation while I was doing this research. <laughs> uh, you know, going to an away game in uh, in a Yugo with uh, four very uh, burly um, football supporters. Um, I, I'm not sure that that experience would have been too different whether I was doing it in the late 80s or in, uh, in the early 2000s when I did it. You know, the, the car's the same, the smells are the same, the, um, the environment in which, you're, in which you're traveling, the approach to the stadium, the teams in many cases are the same. So, so while acknowledging that there are all kinds of, you know, methodological pitfalls with this approach, it, it really does when studying uh, very contemporary history um, help immensely, I think, to, uh, to experience some of those things firsthand. You know, if you're being uh, chased, chased down a Belgrade street by, by riot police, um, I, I can't imagine that the fear is, is any different. In, in the early 2000s to how it would have been in the in the 70s or the 80s. Uh, so there are all kinds of um, very important um, benefits to to that kind of travel and, and to those experiences and also to to talking to people in environments in which they're familiar as well. Uh, you know, in uh, whether it's in the local pub where uh, fans always go before the game or in the, the director's office of a football club or uh, sometimes uh, on the side of the pitch, you know, talking to a manager 
during a training session who, who used to uh, who used to play football something like this it's a, just a way to to see the game in the round and to actually appreciate the uh, the multifaceted nature of that of that activity and the way that people um, engage with it and in, in terms of how I did this so when I moved to to Serbia to learn the language I watched uh, as much sport as I possibly could so uh, three sometimes four matches a, a week so so traveling down to Belgrade from Novi Sad for um, some of the bigger games so Red Star Partizan things like this uh, but then also traveling for uh, games at the lowest possible levels you know the in the so-called Betonska Liga or um, sort of concrete concrete league of uh, of Belgrade, so fifth, sixth division stuff, where where some of the greatest teams in uh, in Yugoslavia have sunk since the uh, since the end of the war. Now, whether it's going to a small town somewhere and uh, and watching a game in in Vojvodina or uh, or elsewhere, just to to get that sense of the the football landscape, which uh, which actually existed at the time when I was writing the book, and and to get the the sense of how that's changed over time, you know. So, um, for instance, going to watch a match in in Osijek, which is just over the the Danube from Serbian Vojvodina, uh, is now quite a uh, involved task from Novi Sad. You know, you have to take a bar, take a bus, you have to cross an international border, um, and and all of the things that come with it. Whereas, uh, of course. Even in the late 1980s, that was a a relatively um, easy away trip for someone to make from Novi Sad. Yeah, I um, I want to jump into more of the content of the book here, but I just want to hit again that this is an impressive amount of research, kind of not only into the big clubs, but the travel, the kind of different evidentiary um, source material that you use, especially oral histories. It really allowed you to get into the kind of smaller clubs in the the real textured life of of um, participating in some of those clubs in a way that uh, in, a, in a way that helps you tell this story much better than a focus on partisan and Red Star ever would have done. Uh, so that I I really um, enjoyed that. Um, yeah, just I, um, it, it brings to mind the conversation that you were having with. Alan McDougall recently, which which I listened to a, a few days ago, and Alan was talking about the the way that sports historians often often have to be quite creative with the source base that they have at their disposal. So, and and that's that's really true. So, in addition to those um, exploring of of locations of oral history, you have to kind of check and balance that against uh, other. Uh, perhaps more traditional sources, you know. So, so in some places, we have substantial records surviving uh, of um, the the Yugoslav Football Association of particular clubs of regional associations. Um, there's also rich photographic um, resources and uh, very rich histories as well, and and histories written in uh, in various periods of of the state from uh, perspectives that often reflect the political developments of the time. So whether that's uh, 
in in the monarchist years, in the the fascist years of the forties, uh, in the socialist years, or afterwards. You get you can often put side by side on the table two or three histories of the same club and uh, get a completely different uh, perspective of of what that club was, what it represents, what it's done. Uh, so so it's a way. Uh, in a way, you ha- you have to put all of these things together and uh, uh, and try and find the the story uh, in it, in the the complexity and the the, the rich source base available. I remember um, one of the first times I went to the former Yugoslavia to Sarajevo to interview some uh, supporters at uh, Železnica, so railway worker football club in in Sarajevo. And uh, a woman who she was a longtime supporter of the club and involved in the in the supporters groups, uh, and she also very kindly acted as an interpreter. So this was before I'd learnt the language. And uh, she said, "Yeah, I'm I'm very happy to help you with this as long as um, we're on the same page. You know, as long as you don't see history as science, because I've lived in this uh, this city for long enough to know that history isn't science." Uh, that that history isn't uh, a list of facts. That it it can be manipulated. That it uh, it can be told in in all different ways. And uh, and she was very very keen to to portray that idea. And in the case of her her football club, that made a lot of sense as well because that was a football club that had been reinvented on on several occasions. At, at one point, a club that existed in two very different forms on either side of a, a front line in the 1990s. And so so that's also a, a fascinating element of this. So let's, let's get to talking about then how football comes to the, the kingdom of Yugoslavia. So you, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the beginnings of football in Yugoslavia and this kind of um, uneven development maybe of it. Yeah, sure. So... It's really in the the former Habsburg lands where football gets its first uh, foothold. So, in parts of uh, modern day Croatia, Slovenia, uh, northern Serbia, and it's a a process which shares much in common with other parts of Eastern Europe. So, quite often you see students going to study abroad, and uh, they bring home with them during the holidays or at the end of their studies, uh, knowledge of this of this game. And often they're bringing footballs with them uh, and other things like that. And so we see the first football clubs are established um, in, uh, in places like Zagreb, Belgrade, Split. And they're quite often um, student-led uh, organisations. And we see, as, as you said, a very uneven uneven spread uh, and development of the game uh, across the territories, which will become uh, Yugoslavia. And the same is true of the competition. So it it takes quite some time for anything that you could possibly call a a national competition to come together when, uh, after the state is formed in 1918. So uh, we have uh, effectively a cup competition Coming, coming into place. Uh, and it's not until the, the 1920s that we see this uh, 
kind of crystallizing into into a national tournament. It's completely dominated by teams from uh, the three major cities, uh, although it's a stretch to call to call split a city at that at that stage. It's <laughs> well under a hundred thousand people, but um, but Belgrade, Zagreb, and Split uh, dominate interwar football, and we start to see the the first big uh, attendances during the interwar years. We see the first big rivalries forming, um, larger way followings, going traveling by train between between Belgrade and, and Zagreb in particular, uh, and we see many of um, the kind of embryonic stages of um, of what will become the established game uh, of the post Second World War years uh, in that period. And in fact, some of the some of the football clubs uh, that are have have notice, notable success in the interwar years, such as Hajduk from Split or, or Vojvodina from Novi Sad, actually survive into the socialist years because they're uh, they don't they're not seen to have done anything that's uh, uh, catastrophically uh, beyond the pale for the for the socialist regime um, when when the whole landscape is uh, remolded in the nineteen forties. And even even with the other kind of giants of the interwar years, so um, in particular, uh, Grajansky, um, Concordia, and Hashk in Zagreb, and then Yugoslavia and uh, BSK or Belgrade Sport Club, uh, they also play at grounds which go on to be important in the post Second World War story. Uh, although the clubs themselves don't survive directly. Their their colours, for example, are carried forwards in in many cases into new clubs, and uh, there's also direct continuity between um, those interwar clubs and their post-war successes in terms of the the playing staff and the the coaches and things like this. So um, those interwar years are foundational for all sorts of reasons. Also, of course, in terms of um, international football, which is uh, developing in the interwar years uh, at quite a rapid pace, we see Yugoslavia enjoying some early success. So, one of the the few European teams to compete in the first World Cup in Uruguay in 1930, and uh, actually manages to reach the the semi final of that competition. And so, having suffered very heavy defeats in the beginning of of their story, the the national team does start to uh, produce some impressive results as we move towards um, the 1930s and then the Second World War. One of the things I loved about your book is I think sports historians are often kind of wrestling with the question of how much is sports a reflection of culture and how much it's a driver of, of historical change. And one of the things that I saw in your work is the way in which football could uh, be both a reflection, but also this driver that even in the interwar period, you could see some of the contours uh, emerging, the ethnic, the social um, contours, especially with this rise of worker sport that would become essential in the in the wartime period. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Did it, is that uh, is that a through line you kind of discovered or is that just your intuition from the beginning that sports could be a driver of history or am I misreading it entirely? No, it's definitely something that, that developed as I was doing the project. You know, I, 
I think I started off with the idea that uh, football could be symbolic and and reflective of all kinds of political developments, as you say, um, as a kind of uh, an amplifier of of already existing um, political relationships and divides. But on so many occasions in the history of Yugoslav football, it's actually a driver of um, of political developments. So, uh, for example, in the the interwar years, football, having suffered all manner of um, political division on the lines of the um, of the broader politics of the state, so so predominantly, although by no means exclusively, uh, divisions between uh, kind of centralized visions of a state centered on Belgrade and and a, a much more federal conception of a, a more decentralized uh, entity. So, and this, this often broke down along, um, to, to put it very simplistically, along Serb-Croat lines. Um, but the, the football authorities in the interwar years actually um, arrived at a federal structure for the Yugoslav state at a point where Yugoslavia was um, a, a more or less centralized state we see the um, the emergence uh, towards the very end of of the project um, of a, an autonomous Croatia, but in the the football world, the the Yugoslav Football Association is actually renamed as a as a federation, and we see specific um, entities within that federation for Slovene, Croat, and and Serbian football. So it's really quite uh, ahead of the curve in in that respect. And, and I would argue that that continues to be the case throughout the period in question. Um, and also the, the game goes far beyond the symbolic in all sorts of other respects as well. So we see, uh, footballers, administrators, and spectators taking up arms in support of all manner of political causes. So whether that's in, um, in support of the the socialist revolution in the 1940s or in defense of the various uh, puppet states that are established on the territory of, of Yugoslavia um, or in the, um, the wars of the 1990s. We see, we see footballers and spectators fighting on, on all sides, often in a very organized way. So we see paramilitaries developing out of organized supporters groups. We see, um, the, the squads of particular clubs. So I, I mentioned a Sarajevo club earlier. So um, we see the squads of those clubs in, in multi-ethnic cities like Sarajevo dividing um, across the front lines and actually taking up arms uh, against one another, something which isn't lost on um, sports journalists at the time. And so I think while, of course, uh, it's, uh, it's reflective of politics and uh, nationalism in all sorts of ways. It, it is also very much a a forum in which um, those that are already in power can uh, use football to to construct a state, to reinforce it, and to uh, to get their political message across. Um, and for those who uh, aspire to something other than the status quo, to um, manipulate the game and to use the game to express other uh, potential alternatives. 
Yeah, well, I think potential alternative. I mean, that could have been almost the subtitle of your book in some ways, <laughs> potential alternatives. One of the major hinges of, of, of your work, of course, is the Second World War. And I don't think it, I mean, you cannot just understate its importance, um, but uh, rather overstate its importance. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the wartime politics of sport um, was later kind of repoliticized in a post-war m- moment. So, so how were how was sport used in the wartime, and then how was sport then politicized? Wartime sport conduct politicized in this post-war moment in the in the effort to create this new Yugoslavia, a, a socialist Yugoslavia. Sure. So. Football in the Second World War was utilised by all uh, political projects in the the Western Balkans. So shortly after the Axis invasion, we see football clubs being harnessed to underline uh, new realities. So in the, the so-called independent state of Croatia, we very quickly have teams competing from Bosnia-Herzegovina, from Zeman, which is effectively a suburb of, of Belgrade these days, uh, to, to underline the, the new border of this expanded Croatian state. And the same is true in, in other cases as well. So for, for parts of territory which are annexed directly by the Axis powers, for example, parts of Macedonia to, to Bulgaria uh, or parts of the Dalmatian coast to Italy, we see clubs being drafted into the elite competitions of those of those states as a way to underline the uh, the new political division of this of this territory and there's one remarkable case in the second world war where a club refuses to play along with this and that's the case of Heidek Split so the italian sporting authorities uh, and political authorities are very keen to parachute Heiduk into the the top league of Italian football and to to replicate a process which is already in train in in other parts of um, of the Western Balkans but Heiduk refuses um, to this despite promises of a of a new stadium and of air travel to away games and all sorts of things and as a result the club is uh, inactive during the the period of occupation and this provides an opportunity to the the partisan authorities. Um, so, on the the liberated island of Vis, uh, some some way out into the Adriatic, there's already a a partisan uh, battalion who have set up their own football group, and they're playing matches against uh, Allied air force and navy teams and things like this. And they hit upon the idea of. Um, establishing a team to represent uh, the the partisan movement so uh, Tito's um, partisan force and this is agreed to and it's it's agreed that the most logical thing to do is to basically uh, regenerate Heiduk split on the island of Vis and so multiple players and and coaches are smuggled out of occupied territory and um, taken to Vis and very quickly, that that club is set up, uh, and and is very successful against any uh, allied forces teams that it plays. It eventually bar- embarks upon a 
a tour of the liberated Mediterranean, so playing matches in packed stadiums across southern Italy, uh, also in Egypt, uh, in, in the Middle East, on Malta and elsewhere. And this is the point at which the, the party realises the uh, immense propaganda potential of, of sport. And this, this isn't just a kind of localised thing. The, the Heideck performances generate press coverage globally. And th- this is something which, which the party latches onto. And there's, there's documentary records to show the party's uh, involvement in this project. Um, and then after uh, liberation, we, we see football being harnessed in all kinds of other ways. So, uh, for example, just as the, uh, the puppet states and the Axis forces had done in the Second World War, we see the game being used to underline the new realities of the new federal Yugoslavia. So uh, we see cup competitions and leagues put into place that, that replicate the new uh, political boundaries, so both external and internal. And in some cases, these are rather provocative. So, for example, uh, in the case of disputed territory with Italy, we see a team being parachuted into the top Yugoslav league to represent uh, the newly incorporated Istria. Uh, and the, the team in question is uh, Kvarna Rijeka. And that happens after the start of the season. And likewise, several weeks into the season, we see a team from uh, the heavily disputed city of Trieste being parachuted into the Yugoslav top league as well. Uh, and, and so you have this remarkable situation in the first two or three years after the end of the Second World War, where the city of Trieste is uh, represented in both the Yugoslav top flight and the Italian top flight by two different football clubs. So, so there's all of this kind of direct use of the game to, to manifest the new reality. Um, you also have a symbolic use as well. So, so lots of the clubs that uh, had tainted histories as a result of their uh, activities during occupation and, and as a result of so-called collaboration are forcibly uh, disbanded by the communists. A new uh, politically um, representative clubs are established in their place with uh, with names that really underline the the revolution so we get red star and partisan and uh proletarian progress future freedom these are the the new names of football clubs that come to the fore and we also see uh workers clubs from the interwar years which were uh, directly discriminated against by the the interwar monarchy and also in many of the occupied territories um having their moment in the sun as well. So so teams such as Velej Mostar uh, suddenly start to enjoy significant success in the socialist years uh, and become almost bastions of the revolution. They're, they're held up as very important actors in, in bringing the Communist Party to power. So, so we have those kinds of developments going on. And we also see the game being used as a means to uh, for, for Yugoslavia to express itself internationally as well. So in the years immediately after the Second World War, Yugoslavia is very much a, a kind of loyal member of the Eastern Bloc, is uh, in fact one of the, the regimes that's closest to, to Stalin for a while. 
Um, but then we, we see the, the Tito-Stalin split of 1948, where Yugoslavia is effectively uh, ejected from the bloc for refusing to tow the, uh, the Soviet party line. And very quickly, we see the game being harnessed to, uh, as a means for Yugoslavia to express its separate identity. We see tours taking place across Western Europe and uh, across the rest of the world. We see uh, football being used as a vehicle to demonstrate Yugoslavia's unique politics, this emerging politics of non-alignment in the uh, binary Cold War world. Uh, to express the the new political projects in Yugoslavia. So um, something such as uh, socialist self-management, for example. And once again, football is very much in the vanguard of these developments. So there are Yugoslav football teams playing matches in countries of, of the future non-line movement in the early 1950s. So so there are Yugoslav teams traveling to Ethiopia, to Sudan, to uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, all over the place uh, to, as a tool of uh, diplomacy, as ambassadors for Tito's Yugoslavia. Um, and this, this really does uh, once again underline Yugoslavia's unique status in the Cold War world. Uh, and it's something which puts down very firm roots as well. So you have coaches, for example, in in football, but also basketball and other sports being sent to many of the non-aligned states in in Africa and Asia and becoming national team managers or or managers of the top football clubs in those locations. And and that still has a legacy today. Yeah, I I hope people who are listening um, are hearing what I discovered when reading the book, which was how kind of how uh, aptly, but how much difficulty anyone would have describing the kind of fiendish overlapping nature in some ways <laughs> of Yugoslavian sport, which had these kind of very particular nationalist elements where you have this Yugoslav state that wants to promote a kind of Yugoslavian identity overlaid on very, um, in some ways real, but in some ways also influx national identities uh, that are all contesting, uh, especially that kind of, to as, as you said earlier, and as I'll say again, to put it kind of bluntly, especially this tension between um, Serb and Croatian uh, national identities. But then there are also these transnational influences from all over the place. Uh, some of them completely unexpected it's like uh, uh torcida um and and all of these australian croatian nationalists who having lived in australia now for almost five years i i know exist <laughs> um because australian sports is still in some ways very much stuck in the balkans of the 1990s um, we just recently had a stabbing at a match between croatian team and a macedonian team here um, <laughs> but, uh, also just this, I, I, so when I was reading it, I was fascinated and I loved it, but I, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, was that difficult for you to then kind of manage some of these kinds of, all these overlapping factors? Yeah, it's, it's really a, a challenge. And in some ways the, 
overarching structure of the book is a, an oversimplification. You know, we have this uh, antecedents section followed by uh, a few chapters on the game as a, a revolutionary state building force, and then uh, the last few chapters on the the game as a a force to manifest dissent as a as a destabilizing element. Um, and and ultimately as a a weapon in in conflict, but but you're right. I mean these things are are overlapping the whole time, all the way through the story. So in the very first match that Red Star Belgrade, the newly formed Red Star, play against the newly formed Dinamo Zagreb, uh, so two clubs which will go on to be kind of bastions of Serbian and Croatian nationalism, respectively. We see uh, unrest in the crowd. We see the the Serbian supporters shouting um, kind of derogatory uh, fascist insults at the uh, the Dinamo players and we see the Dinamo players responding in kind by by referring to Serbs in uh, in various ways linking them to to the the fascist events of the the second world war so um, and this is something which which will go on throughout the entire period so during a period which in many respects is the uh, the brightest time for the Yugoslav project uh, and perhaps the most successful years, so into the 50s and 60s, we we see all manner of unrest in football stadiums. So you mentioned Torcida in Split, uh, a club which, um, a, a fan group which comes about uh, following the, uh, the, the World Cup in Brazil, taking on a, a Portuguese name, and um, immediately attracting the the, unwan- the unwanted attention of the communist authorities and, and eventually being shut down for um, supposedly being a Croatian nationalist force and for having all kinds of uh, underlying uh, fascist nationalist intentions, um, many of which uh, really weren't, weren't there. But, but nonetheless... The politicians know that this is um, important territory. They know that they need to keep a handle on these these events at any given time, and you see that as well with with the tours. So, as much as the authorities, both sporting and political, try to um, stage manage and manipulate many of these uh, events, there is always the potential. For, for these things to be derailed. So um, there are two very uh, well-known tours which Hyduk make to Australia, um, one in 1949, so very, very early, uh, and then another one um, right at the end of the state um, in, in 1990. And um, both of these tours are... The, the players encounter emigre uh, Croatians in, in Australia and come under significant amounts of pressure to behave in a different way. And so particularly the, the tour in 1990 is a formative one. It's, it's the point at which the, the players supposedly unilaterally remove the, the red star of socialism from their shirts and return to the old uh, red and white checkered Shehovnitsa badge. But this is something which is um, more or less... Uh, forcibly encouraged by uh, emigre populations living in in Australia. So so we we see this 
this process whereby all kinds of actors are having an input here. So it's it's very much not the case that you have you know one overarching powerful football club which is uh, being carefully directed by the communist state and uh, calling the tune. We we see all manner of actors, whether um, at the local level or in terms of emigres and elsewhere, having a, a direct part to play in in the the political elements surrounding the game. You mentioned um, that the final chapters are about the kinds of possibility of the game uh, to promote fracture within Yugoslavia, um, and that perhaps that in some ways leads to these broader fractures or helps to uh, drive these broader fractures. And, and one of the things that I found so fascinating about these final chapters is how sometimes those fractures were based on these ethnic tensions that have um, undergirded the project the whole time. Sometimes they, they weren't. So some, like I wanted to know more about the vultures. I was, I was like, Oh, these guys sound interesting. Um, sometimes they're about symbolism, this Petra Kraka and Sahovnika Nietzsche. Um, so I, I wonder if you could pull us through the kind of role that football plays in the, in the dismantling of Yugoslavia. And, and was it kind of inevitable or, or are we talking again about missed potentials? Oh, I think we're certainly talking about missed potential. So even uh, very late in the day when the, guns have already started firing. We have high-level meetings going on um, within the uh, jurisdiction of the Football Association of Yugoslavia involving uh, officials from the major clubs trying to hold uh, Yugoslav football together, even at a point when the Yugoslav state does appear to be doomed. So um, there, there is a sense in which there's something worth saving uh, until, until the conflicts really start to deteriorate towards the end of 1991. But this is, this is a point at which something else which I feel is rather important in, in research comes to the fore, and that is that we have to look beyond the, the kind of biggest names and the, the biggest clubs in any given sport to really get a sense of what's going on. And, and I found when looking at the 80s and 90s, some of the most um, insightful examples come from the lower leagues. And so you could often tell what was um, happening politically and, and perhaps what was about to happen through an, a reading of the, the sporting press of, of lower league football uh, at this time. So, for example, long before the, uh, the Yugoslav top flight disintegrates in 1991 and 1992, we see various lower league clubs having to pull out of their, um, of their league competitions. So whether that's at a regional level or at an inter-republic level, uh, because it's simply too dangerous for them to carry on. Yeah. You have um, clubs, either um, predominantly Serbian clubs or predominantly Croatian clubs or, or mixed clubs in, in Croatia and Bosnia, um, taking considerable risks in traveling to away games by uh, 1990 and, and the start of 1991. So, uh, with shots being fired at coach windows, with uh, abuse being hurled uh, at spectators and, and players, and with um, with all kinds of unrest taking place, um, to the point at which uh, some of these clubs just don't deem it 
to be to be worth the risks to carry on and, and they withdraw. And so you also see that that kind of symbolic struggle going on at that level as well. You know, huge amounts of time and effort are spent on um, whether to retain socialist symbols and even names of of clubs moving into the the beginning of the 1990s. We have uh, big arguments over what clubs represent. So so certain clubs have come to be seen as representing particular national identities, um, whereas almost without exception, almost without exception, the, uh, the clubs themselves refute that they are representative of any particular narrow national identity. So um, at a time when when the Heideck incident happened, where they jettisoned the socialist era badge, for example, the administration of the club is is deeply uh, concerned about how this is going to play out, how it's going to manifest itself, uh, and is very keen to distance itself from uh, the more extreme forms of national identity. Um, you talked about the vultures, so a, a supporters group in, in Banja Luka in northern Bosnia. So that was very much a, a multi-ethnic organization, much like the club that they supported, Borats or Fighter Banja Luka. But as much as that supporters organization tried to retain a multi-ethnic identity, um, it was inevitably destroyed by the, uh, the ensuing conflict as uh, the city of Banja Luka was cleansed of um, the majority of its non-Serb population, the vultures and uh, the football club they supported became a, a bastion of Bosnian-Serb nationalism. And, and it remains very much that way to this day. So um, now if you walk around the, uh, the rather small stadium of, of Borac Banja Luka, you will see uh, Serbian national symbols, graffitied on the walls wherever you go. The the club's badge uh, now carries the colours of Serbian nationalism. Um, and the the supporters group, the Vultures, are one of the, the key Serbian nationalist um, organisations for youth in, in Bosnia. Yeah, the, the, the end of your book, I, it, it's... Um... You know, it it does have the sense that there are these kind of missed turnoffs <laughs> that, that different places. Um, but it, it also confounds the kind of story that I think a lot of people think they know about Yugoslav football, if they know anything, um, which is a story that maybe they've read in Franklin Foyer's book about Arkin's Tigers. Um, and it does paint a picture of I think a more complete picture of, of different possibilities. Although one group that maybe doesn't come in as much, um, I did want to know a little bit more about what the role of FIFA and UEFA was in this, in this story. So I wondered if you, as a kind of a last question, um, could, could, um, talk about how FIFA and UEFA, what role they helped, play in either helping preserve or letting break apart Yugoslavian football? Sure, yeah. So so both organisations, um, like most um, foreign states for that matter, were, were in favour of keeping Yugoslavia together, um, often um, uh, 
uh, way way past the the time at which uh, it had become clear that it was uh, going to fall apart, and uh, try to negotiate on on that basis. You also have those two organisations playing um, all manner of roles during the conflicts themselves. So we see sanctions being put in place by the United Nations, which FIFA and UEFA have to adhere to, and. You, you see various uh, rather um, surprising uh, rules being put into place. So, for example, when uh, the, the war in Croatia starts in 1991, um, this is at a point where uh, Yugoslav football is ironically uh, experiencing one of its finest hours. You know, Red Star Belgrade is European champion. They're world, world champion a few months later. Uh, and... They then suffer the the humiliation of having to play their so-called home games away from Belgrade because of the war. So, so they play their matches in in neighbouring states, and uh, the same is true of Croatian clubs as well. So, Croatian clubs are playing their home matches in Austria um, and and other places. And initially, we see this kind of. Uh, engagement of UEFA and FIFA, which is almost universally unpopular, you know, in both places, yeah, in, in Belgrade and Zagreb, they're saying there is no conflict here. Why can't we play the games here? Um, later, we see clubs coming up with some rather innovative um, ways through this. So uh, Borat Spanjaluka that we were just talking about, um, they continue to play in the Yugoslav federal leagues for the duration of the war, despite being in uh, central northern Bosnia. Uh, as a city. And they do this by um, becoming registered through UEFA as a Belgrade football club. So they they play their home games in Serbia proper, so in, in small towns in Vojvodina mostly, but continue to, to represent the city of Banja Luka within a, a Yugoslav framework. Um, and something similar is still going on today with, um, with clubs in northern Kosovo, for example. So um, so we see football being used as a as a way to um, to come up against and, and counter the uh, the claims of independence of of some of these states. Yeah, I, this was I, I wrote at the end of my notes when reading this, and this is the most one of the most unfair things I think I've ever written was I want you to keep going <laughs> because. <laughs> Because it's clear that that you know, um, you know much more about how the, how this story in some ways has changed and how it hasn't changed. How this memorialization of this second war period, you know, this this uh, Yugoslav war period, is again being used to drive uh, club identities and how those club identities are helping shape new conflicts um, within the Balkans. I, <laughs> Yeah, it sure. Was like, oh, I want, I want like three more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> but there are all kinds of um, instances where football is continuing to play that that role. You know, whether it's uh, in terms of North Kosovo uh, or or in terms of the the divided football landscape in Bosnia Herzegovina, or increasingly in terms of the uh, political gestures of um, either emigre players or the children of emigres uh, who are now representing other countries. So whether that's Switzerland or Austria or Australia. Um, so undoubtedly the game uh, has continued to be and will continue to be um, very much a part of the political landscape. 
I have not done a, um, enough to just repeat throughout our conversation, Richard, how much this is an incredibly rich book and we've only touched on some of the things in it. It's, I don't want to make people think that it's uh, 800 pages. It's, it's a tight, you know, 300 some printed pages, uh, but it's just really rich, really well written, really enjoyable. Um, so I, I, I want to applaud you for that. Um, Thanks. That's very uh, kind. <laughs> no, I, I, I really mean it. It's um, I was so impressed because like I say, I think it's a really, it's a, it's a difficult topic to begin with um, any kind of Yugoslavian history and then to take on effectively the whole of the 20th century and to do it at the kind of different um, grain levels of analysis, because as you say, you're not just focusing on the big clubs uh, that, that kind of work is really difficult. Um, so R- Richard, I hate, I hate to ask this question, but it's the last question I always ask everyone. Um, what is it that we can look forward to reading of yours next? Well, it was very tempting to uh, keep going, as you say, and, and look at the post-war period, but um, I've actually made the opposite decision and gone backwards. So uh, what I'm really interested in now is the, the interwar years, which th- there is one chapter in the book about this, but but it doesn't really do the the rich story justice. And uh, in particular, I'm looking at the game as a way to understand um, emerging relationships between Eastern Europe and Latin America. So in terms of uh, emigration, in terms of uh, burgeoning travel, uh, political relationships, um, the, the ways in which emigres um, shape what's happening back in Europe, um, and so, so I'm I'm interested in in that kind of broader transnational story of the interwar years. That sounds uh, fascinating. We'll have to talk a little bit more about that off off the record. I'm I'm very curious, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you again very much for your time, Richard. We've been speaking today with uh, Richard Mills. He is a senior lecturer in history at the University of East Anglia. and He also teaches into the FIFA Masters at De Montfort University. And he is the author of of, uh, the book we've been talking about today, Absolute Cracker, uh, The Politics of Football and Yugoslavia, Sport, Nationalism, and the State. It's out with Bloomsbury, I.B. Taurus in 2018. It's the winner of the Lord Aberdare Literary Prize from the British Society of Sports History. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure. And you all have been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Keith Rathbone, as I say, coming to you live from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for listening.